Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of The Rocketeer Minute and The Apollo 13 Minute. And I'm Hal Bryan of The Rocketeer Minute. And I'm Chris Henry of The Apollo 13 Minute. And we're watching uh, poor Mrs. Parrish just collapse into the arms of her would-be future daughter-in-law, uh, Wilma, there. Um, I I just I want to bring up somebody that uh, we we were good friends with who we lost uh, this past year, uh, Miranda Black, uh, who we had as a frequent guest on on both of our shows, and uh, Rihanna talked about crying when uh, when you cry in a scene in a movie, and she said that uh, someone taught her that don't go all you don't go all the way in your crying, don't crank it up to a hundred because you can't come back from that. That, that that only happens when the scene's over, and uh, Mrs. Parrish does do that. She holds off until this is the end of her scene, so she doesn't lose it until the very last moment. She's in the she's in the frame, and uh, now every time I see somebody crying, I always remember what what Rihanna taught me about <laughs> how to cry on the movies. Um, but uh, she really, I, I can't imagine doing two or three takes of that. It'd be uh, really difficult to to muster that up or or turn it off and then turn it back on yeah it's amazing to me people who are able to do that ah but that's that's why they're actors and we're we're sitting in front of microphones (laughs) that's right that's why we're hiding hiding our faces and uh just jabbering on about their work Uh, (laughs) um you know it, it the naturalistic acting that we just saw it doesn't the problem is it goes into sharp relief against uh, against uh, Al Stevenson and uh, and Fred Derry there in the back of the cab. I just I, they look like two Hollywood actors sitting on a sitting on a stage with a rear projection, saying, right. "You know, this is the way I feel about it." And it's it's funny too because they haven't really slid apart to take advantage of the extra space that they have now that Homer is out of the car. They're still yeah. sort of you know wedged <laughs> up tight. Interesting, too, that uh, Danny Andrews has a seatbelt on, which is pretty rare uh, in cars of, of that era period to even have it. Or is that, is is that, that his a, shoulder belt? I, I thought it was a satchel. You I know what? That's, prob- that's his. Yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. There, there wouldn't have been a seatbelt. Yeah, seatbelts yeah. were still add-on extras into the late 60s, at least. Yeah, especially not so, in a cab. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yep, I stand corrected. Let's all pretend that Jim edited that out, and now I'll go on with my life thinking nobody will hear that little gaffe, but that's um, okay. I was looking at their uh, different accoutrements on their uh, on their uniform, and I was trying to figure out, is that, that that's not a ruptured duck on his, that, that's Army Air Corps, right? That The propeller with the wings on it? Yeah, that's propel? that's Army Air Corps, then later Army Air yeah. Forces, that great wind, yeah. Yeah. wing propeller. And then underneath is are his pilot's wings. Is that correct? On the uh, where I think uh, those are uh, he was a bombardier, wasn't he? A bombardier. Yeah, right. he's yeah. A, those would have been his bombardier wings. Yeah, that would have been bombardier wings. It does it have a bomb on it. Is yeah. That yeah, yeah. There's a set of wings that look very similar to the, the pilot's wings, and then there's a bomb aimed straight down. The okay. the fins of the bomb also kind of have wings on it a little bit, <laughs> but very nice design actually. Yeah, no. yeah, and he's apparently seen a lot of action. I mean, there's. I'm seeing some medals there with uh, four pips on the ribbon. That's uh, so he's been in a couple of different campaigns of really tough stuff. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we find out more about some of his service at least uh, at least one mission uh, that we yeah. hear about. Right. 
Yeah, I, I didn't know if there's a... You can't tell in black and white. I just was trying to figure if there's a Bronze Star, if there's any you know DSO, that kind of thing. Um, but I'm sure this, it's probably accurate. Uh, but uh, we we, uh, we drive out of Homer's neighborhood and into the uh, lush, swanky, um, actually two blocks off of Wilshire Boulevard uh, in L.A., uh, this place is still still stands. That apartment complex is still there, and uh, I tried I tried my best to get the property management people to see if I could get somebody to come on and talk about it, but they didn't return my calls. So we'll just we'll never know. They're about... as bad as the curator of the vacuum cleaner museum. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you give somebody a title, and they're just too good to come on your little podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it was so uh. easy to do, too. You know, it's. Um, but I uh, I was hoping that uh, that they'd be able to come on and uh, that's uh, that's the 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 place itself is on Sycamore Avenue. It's a, a really nice part of uh, uh, it's 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 like Sycamore Avenue and Beverly Boulevard. So uh, you're just kind of on the edge of Beverly Hills. So not a not too bad a, a neighborhood. Um, I just. <laughs> Their property management company, though, has not changed since the guy that's in the well, – we'll, we'll talk about him tomorrow. <laughs> right. <laughs> Apparently, the guy at the front desk, his, his great-grandfather, uh, you know, was no different. Um, just kind of uh, – That good uh, customer annoying. service runs in the family. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. It's uh, – and I, I, I mean, I get – I don't know – I don't know what bank executives would – I would think that a bank executive would own a house instead of an apartment but this might be like the downtown part of boone city and it's you know it's probably more important to uh you know live in a better live in a better neighborhood in an apartment than live right. in a, a homer parish neighborhood and have a house um yeah, very i was thinking so. this is like one of those like kind of swanky uh i guess i'd compare it today to some of those like really swanky like industrial apartments they're they're apartments but geez they're huge you know yeah like you have a big loft and it's a yeah know, a yeah. condo yeah yeah I'm, I'm i'm thinking like uh kind of the uh, the odd couple neighborhoods yeah you know it's like they're <laughs> they're somewhere off of park avenue and uh it's it's the you know the upper east side um i just i'm just trying to imagine raising two kids in an apartment that big and it's just very weird but it's you know that's it was L.A. in the 40s, so. Yeah, um, that's right. So, you know, as I, I watched this minute a couple of times, um, the uh, it, it's so telling. It's it's so well constructed because now we're, you know, Homer wanted to go to go to Butch's, and, and now uh, now here we are. And, you know, Al's suggesting, uh, well, we'll drop you off first, and, and everybody's still, uh, still reluctant. But, you know, um, uh, Dana Andrews first uh, first line in here he's he's trying to be positive and upbeat and not really acknowledge the the negative emotional side of things and he says you got to hand it to the Navy you know they sure trained that kid how to use those hooks and you know of course Al comes back right away with the reality of it but they couldn't train him to put his arms around his girl or stroke her hair um, and that's that hits me hard because the there's this whole theme in this movie about um, showing the things uh, that we don't talk about. And, yeah. you know, you see Fred here is, he's ready to say, boy, they should train him to use those hooks. And Al is supposed to say, yeah, they sure did. Good kid, you know, and now let's move on. But, uh, um, 
but instead, no, we're gonna we're gonna face the reality of it a little bit more, and and you know one more like this one little exchange of dialogue is kind of for me it's the whole movie in microcosm, in that the whole movie is about you know we come home and and come back from war and there is a cost there is a toll it does have an effect on these people, and do you talk about it or do you just smile and say something you know nice job over there son and then move on. Move on with your lives and never, never address it. And this movie is about, uh, is uh, in its way, it's about addressing it. Yeah, and there's the, the questions that it brings up is that can then you expect the Navy to do something for him to to rehabilitate him, but how can you rehabilitate somebody uh, socially, mentally? You know, it, it it's difficult. You can show him how to put quarters, you know, or at the time nickels in the jukebox. Um, you know, how do you say? Oh, by the way, when you're when you're home with your girl, here's how you stroke her hair. It, it's like they, you know, they, that isn't the that isn't the job of the Navy. But there wasn't anybody that had that job. There weren't, you know, therapists, social workers, and things like that back then. There, but this was a huge problem that was facing not just Homer, but millions of men who were coming home that had uh, altered, you know, altered views of the world and and altered circumstances of their own physical uh, nature. Um, I, I grew. I'm, you know, I'm I'm of an age where most of my, most of my friends had dads who were in World War II, and quite a few of them had uh, injuries that they suffered. Some were, some were um, uh, mental injuries, and some were physical injuries. But uh, you know, the mental ones are are difficult to uh, to walk through. I, I talked previously about my uncle Al, who, you know, basically had a he was captured during the Battle of Estonia, and. Um, had to walk across Germany and then then came home weighing 86 pounds. But I knew um, I had friends whose dad had uh, had lost a foot because uh, they had stepped on a uh, on a mine on a, you know some unnamed island in the Pacific. Uh, I had uh, a, fr- a friend whose uncle had no eyes because uh, they were they were shot and they had to remove his eyes to get to the bullet to save his brain. But they he lost his eyesight. And they, they went through life with it. You know, like this is, we didn't know them during the war. We didn't know them before, but they always had this to us growing up. They always had these injuries. And, you know, some of them were, uh, the, uh, the one guy who was, uh, who was blinded. Um, he was the head of the, uh, the local Knights of Columbus at, at our parish church. And it's like a blind guy can, can do the books. Uh, it was, you know, it's just one of those, one of those things that uh, you're like, okay, that, he has a hardship, but he's figured out a way around it. And uh, it seemed like that was what they were, that's what you were supposed to do. And people that had uh, emotional problems that they couldn't get over those things, uh, it seemed like it was either a rarity or it wasn't discussed. You know, nowadays, if, if you have PTSD and things like that, there, uh, there's a host of, people you know trying to find therapy therapies and uh and and assistance but back then it was considered well he's you know uh flack happy or you know that they just wrote it off as well this this can't be fixed this can't be cured you're just gonna have to deal with that or or don't talk about it right yeah yeah Um, wow (laughs) and that's you know that's something that you know the not the to, to self promote, but the book Hal and I uh, put out, um, the stories about these veterans in the B seventeen. Uh, whether you were wounded or not, 
uh, over there. Veterans just put away, in a lot of cases, they put away what they went through when they came home because, I, I, and I think in part it was they didn't want to be showing off like a hero. There's a there's a lot of the veterans that are, the ones that are still with us today are always worried that they're going to get portrayed as a hero. They don't think they did anything heroic. And the other thing is, is that I don't think they felt that they could relate or properly explain what they went through to people who weren't there. And um, so they just, you know, they just put it away. And that is something that I think is really amazing that our air tour aircraft are able to do, you know, the B-17, the B-25, when they pull into town and the veterans are able to come out and check it out. It's a big catalyst for them to start pouring these stories out again. And I know, you know, how myself, uh, you know, the, the members of our crew, everybody has that story of we've showed a veteran around the airplane, uh, whether it's one of the air tour aircraft, one of the ones in the, in the museum, and the family will come up to us afterwards and they'll say, like, well, he, we've never heard these stories. He's never talked about this. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of one of the special things that, that you know, these, these preserved aircraft have the power to do. Are, now, are you getting that more with more recent things? I was wondering. I don't know if you have anything in the museum from like the Desert Storm era, but I, I was just wondering if you get veterans from say twenty years ago that uh, that are coming in that are that are reviving memories now. Well, I'll tell you the the Huey is our probably most uh, uh, most modern combat aircraft uh, that we have in the collection uh, from a military standpoint. Um, I mean, you know, technically the Huey actually did fly into to the Gulf War. Uh, our aircraft did not. Our aircraft was Vietnam era. But um, uh, I'll tell you, when we have the speaker series going on, we do have, uh, I try to host speakers from all different eras, all different genres and whatever they did. And we had something that, um, how, you know, you and I did our the EAA Green Dot podcast with these guys. And I, w- I have to admit, I was not ready for the emotion. Uh, we had three stealth fighter pilots who flew the opening night of the Gulf War. Oh. And there was a lot of raw emotion when they started telling their story. They had not all seen each other since the Gulf War. Um, and we had all three of them back in the room with us. This is, you know, before the pandemic. And um, there was a lot of there was a lot of emotion that came out of that. And I have to admit, I, I did not I wasn't ready for it. But it was, um, you know, it, it's very similar to what you would hear from a World War Two veteran, I think, Uh um, you know, how do you think? Do you think I'm I'm on on that? Uh, I usually think you're wrong about a lot of things, Chris. But in this case, <laughs> no, absolutely not. That was uh, that was certainly a uh, a powerful episode. Although, if, if I remember correctly, I was I uh, I was a listener on that episode. I think that was you and maybe you and Tom who did that one. Uh, oh, okay, did that one okay. together. But uh, it's it's very powerful stuff. Um, uh, the topic of uh, somewhat related, certainly talking about Desert Storm and more recent recent wars. Um, uh, I, I seem to, I, I've, I've skipped it this week, but, uh, I know our, our previous run of episodes, I couldn't stop, uh, recommending books. Um, so, uh, another one I'll throw out there, uh, is a book called Hogs in the Sand. And it was written by, by a, a guy that I'd since learned was, uh, is a member of EAA, the organization where Chris and I work, a lifetime member, in fact. Um, but, uh, it's his, uh, his memoir of flying A-10s. And it, uh, he was able to write the book because he did a really good job of, of keeping a journal every day. And the book is, it's more than just, uh, 
just his journal entries, but they provide the the backbone of it. And I uh, I think what what blows my mind about it was that you could see so many different opportunities where it would be it would be easy for him to fictionalize it a little bit, or it'd be easy for him to. You know, I want to emphasize the the good and not so much of the bad. Um, so many places where it's it's as readable as a really well written novel, but because it's real life, you know, things don't always go exactly the way you expect. Things aren't always resolved uh, either the way you expect or sometimes even at all. Uh, and it was uh, it ended up being an incredibly compelling uh, compelling read. Uh, you know, by somebody who was uh, who was just going to sit there and just share the experience—the the good, the bad, the ugly, um, the you know the aspects of it that uh, that he loved, the things he loved about flying the airplane and serving his country, and the the parts that were that were tough, sort of the grim reality of it. Um, so it's a it's a strong recommendation, and definitely somebody uh, we ought to talk to about coming in to to speak and things like that, Chris. Yeah, it sounds awesome, and I'm an A10 geek, so for Likewise, sure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I used to live at the end of the runway of a, an A10 base in Pennsylvania, and they were always overhead. And it was just amazing seeing seeing a gun with wings was just something that you never get 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 out of your head. Um, one of the things we're, we just were talking about, Chris, you were you were saying about that Huey was the most recent of your of your military, but you keep yeah, of your military collection in in the museum, but. One of the things that I've learned in in museums is that uh, history keeps happening. Right? <laughs> it's like it's like everything that we're doing, the things that happened yesterday are now history, and yeah. it gets it gets preserved. And it takes a while for people to realize that that you know you can have curated exhibits from recent things. Um, I, I've yeah. told this story on on another podcast, but when uh, when my daughter was a little shortly after nine eleven, I'd say about maybe six months after nine eleven, uh, the Smithsonian had a an exhibit an a, an early curated 911 exhibit and they had um things like uh pagers that were found in at ground zero and uh desk calendars and things from the pentagon that were yeah you know you know cell cell phones and whatever um uh, id badges and things uh, in little cases at the smithsonian as a temporary exhibit and uh, her school had a trip to the Smithsonian that we went to, and one of the kids there was, uh, she was, I think, seventh or eighth grade. Uh, uh, the the this eighth grader said to me, "Well, why do they have this in a museum? This isn't history." And it's <laughs> it's, it's uh, as they were looking at it, it's like neither were any of the other pieces in the whole museum. They weren't always history; they were things that happened, and it, it was interesting to see the gears clicking in this kid's head going, Oh, that's, that's what all this stuff is about. You know, we, we right. see things, we have a tendency of seeing things like, you know, when you look at your, your Huey, uh, in, in a nice air conditioned building, um, if, if we kind of separate ourselves from the idea that this thing was, you know, landing in an LZ that was hot and that people were getting shot at and they had to get out of, they had to get out of there before they, you know, they lost the, they lost the ship and, and they, they made it back. So, you know, this, it, it, even though it's, it's to us, it's history. It, at one time it was the latest and greatest and it was actually making history. Um, which I think that's, that's the job of every museum is to explain that you're not looking <laughs> at collected, uh, artifacts. You're looking at what, what used to be current events. 
Well, with the Huey, it, uh, you know, and I, I don't want to derail us too much here, but uh, the one thing about it is it's an artifact, it's an aircraft that whether, you know, for example, an F-4 Phantom, great airplane, I love F-4s, um, and unless you were in the Air Force or you happened to see one, you know, out one day, you know, on a mission or something, you know, your day-to-day life probably did not cross paths with an F-4 Phantom. Yep. The Huey, everybody either flew on them, saw them, interacted with them, heard them every day in Vietnam. I mean, they were they were just so everywhere that um, that's what I love about that airframe is the emotion of everybody that was, you know, in the service at that time period. Um, the minute they see it, it just, it's, it's like seeing an old friend. And, uh, um, so yeah, it's a, it, and it's a little interesting cause it's, you know, it, it's, it's a lot newer than the, the, you know, the P38 and the XP51 yeah. and all that. Um, but, um, and it's a different generation and different generation veterans. Um, they're, they, they react different. The World War II vets, uh, some things are the same, but a lot of things are different from generation to generation with the, you know, with the conflicts they served in. And uh, the Huey is, um, in many ways, I think it's healing. You know, it, people are uh, coming out to see it. The vets that are coming out to see it uh, get to share their tale or they sit in their old seat one more time if they let us know they're coming. And um, there's just some good stuff happening with it. But it's very important that, again, that, that for for some people, Vietnam isn't that long ago for for other people, you know, it's it's a long time ago, um, but it's it's very important to you know to preserve all forms of history. It's also important to preserve it while it's still fresh, if you know what I yeah. mean. You yeah, know, well, uh, that, that you that you realize that it's history, that it's going to be it's yeah. going to be a major marker. Well, and um, that's what aircraft. If you look at the Air Force Museum. Um, you know, there's a few recent addition aircraft like an AC-130, uh, their Osprey, things like that that literally flew. So my favorite one is their their one of their helicopters. It literally flew a mission in Afghanistan, flew back to its base, shut down, was dismantled, put into a C-5, and flown the right pat, reassembled. So the last time that aircraft flew was literally a combat mission. Wow. I mean, that's pretty cool. It's their Pavlo helicopter, and to me, that's amazing that. Um, that that's it. The last time that thing was turning a blade, it was in combat. I mean, that's wow. amazing. Pretty, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that, that's the way with um, uh, Udvar, Udvarhazi's uh, SR seventy one. The last yeah. flight that it the last flight oh, that it yeah. made was a record breaking coast to coast flight. I I watched it land at Dulles Airport, and it was going right into mothballs <laughs> right after it got to the end of the taxiway. So I just you know it, it the idea that it did something real just you know that that's the last time those engines turned um yeah, the uh, concord at uh, obviously not you know military service the concord at the museum of flight in seattle did the same thing they they oh, were wow. able to uh, to open a supersonic corridor uh through canada and so when this airplane flew uh new york to seattle it was able to set a speed record and then oh, land that's and awesome. shut down and you know basically put the velvet ropes around it and that was uh that was that, and that was uh, that was really something to see. Wow! Yeah, it's uh, now I know we've gone a little far, far afield <laughs> from uh, from the the movie here, but uh, we're we're just about to drop Al off at the at, at his swank home. 
but uh, we'll, we'll catch up with him some more tomorrow and probably get back into 1946. <laughs> I, I do have a question, Chris, though. In, in your in your museum, what is the uh, what is the aircraft you have to ask people not to touch the most? Please don't, like, people that seem... <laughs> I know people get very handsy when they're in a museum, but it's like, what, what do you notice that, that people seem to touch more? Boy, that's don't interesting. Don't say me. Okay. What's that, Hal? Don't say me. Uh, yeah, okay. exactly. It's talking about an artifact, the, not a The cool HAL artifact. interactive experience always is a line. <laughs> don't, <laughs> yeah, don't touch HAL. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a good question. Um, the way our museum is set up, the aircraft are, are pretty... Um, they're behind like a, like low stanchions. I mean, you really yeah. can't touch most of them. That's kind of the museum standard. Um, boy, I mean, that, that's a tough one just simply because uh, you, you can't reach most of them. Occasionally, oh, okay. people will try really hard uh, to touch the Corsair prop, and we have to remind them that, to please not. But uh, So I guess that just because if you really, really, really try, you could kind of touch it but you know you're not supposed to and uh you know i I just i just keep picturing little stickers with featuring you on it and with a with a with a shaking of fingers going hey hey yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) no most most of the aircraft are there's kind of like a museum standard and i don't know what that number is but that the stanchions are supposed to be so many feet away and keep to keep you know people from touching them and yeah uh, so you really can't touch most of the airplanes now you know with that said we do have experiences where we'll if uh, proper uh, you know communication with us we can get you a chance if, if someone's dad flew a mustang in world war ii you know we'll try and let them have a chance to look in the p51 or the mosquito or something so with with, with proper coordination we, we we do allow it but yeah you know our, our, our visitors are pretty cool they don't uh we don't have too much trouble <laughs> <laughs> i just uh i i keep thinking of uh in I won't name the museum, but they had an they had an Apollo spacecraft that uh, had nothing had no plastic on it or anything like that, and they actually like rubbed the paint off the doorway from people yeah. rubbing their hand on the hatch, <laughs> and uh, they finally put a new it, it plastic in a in a wall and pretty much I, I think the Smithsonian said if anything happens to this again, you're going to get it yanked and it'll go to you know Kalamazoo or something. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, difficult difficult to keep. Uh, I, I, under, I understand the re- people wanted, to, you know, like like uh, yeah. Captain Picard wanted to, <laughs> you know, it's it's like first contact. You just you, you want to have that that tactile feel of history. Well, I think um, you you touch it, it becomes real. Like this, yeah. you held this in your hand. Um, you know, I had a chance to go through Memphis Bell when it was under restoration, and that moment you're about to crawl through that doorway. Uh, you're like, this is real, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, this was, um, this was there. And I think, uh, uh, there's just something for having a chance to look at or inspect, uh, even if it's just a, a piece of something that was there. I mean, I, I, I know Hal has a large collection of the, the mini museums and, and I have some, some, some items like that as well. And, uh, I think that's the. There's just something cool about holding that. Like, wow, this went there. It, it doesn't matter how big the piece is. It's this piece that I'm holding. You know, uh, went to the moon or went to you know wherever. So, yeah, I I have a uh, when I was working on my master's thesis that involved Frank Capra, uh, I went to the Frank Capra collection, which is up in Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and I needed to get copies of uh, some of the scripts that Frank Capra had, and they. They were old rusty staples that were on the 
on the things that they 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 got out a uh, an unstapler and unstapled it so they could make copies and just put the uh, the rusty staple on the table while they were doing that. And I have I have a rusty staple from Frank Capra's uh, shooting script to It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, that's awesome! And, and it's like I was thinking this was on you know every, every place he was going when he was going to shoot the next day. He probably had the the script rolled up in his pocket with a staple holding it together. But I've got you know, and it's like. They didn't want to. Well, you you were saying on a previous episode when we were talking about Frank Borman's pencils that you like. Oh, I can't. I gotta save this pencil that Frank yeah, Borman so, once used. Well, you know, it, yeah, it's really funny when we were when we were getting the donation for the museum. Uh, Frank handed us a desk drawer, and he was like, "Here, you might as well take these." And he just kind of dumped this desk drawer. And it this was not like an Apollo era desk drawer, but this is like a current. You know, he was using this desk, but he was going to clean it out. And, you know, he had autograph markers from when he would get requests to sign autographs. And we bring them home, and I'm like, you know, this was still part of the donation, as silly as this sounds. Like, you know, we got to make sure we put Frank's markers, <laughs> you know, in there. And uh, uh, and then how are we going to use them? And, and what should we do with them? And should we mark cards and, and with an X? And, like, this came from Frank. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> I, it, it was really strange. But, um it's. I couldn't imagine being a in a position like that where, anytime you touch something, it's like, oh, that just became valuable. <laughs> you know. Yeah, right. yeah. Usually it's, it's the just, opposite. When I touch something, it's like, oh, that decreased in value. Now. Right. Yeah. Somebody following you saying artifact, artifact, artifact. <laughs> right, well, exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. When 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 my car got totaled, I I was trying to figure out some way of getting the passenger seat out of it because Frank Borman sat. In- <laughs> <laughs> sat in that passenger. It's like that's Frank Borman's chair. I was going to put a plaque on it. Yeah. But, uh, I remember uh, he uh, he sent. Yeah, uh, I don't know what what like the 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 name of the jackets are, but the the blue gray NASA jackets. Um, he uh, he had his his original from Apollo Eight, and he's like still wearing it. Like he was just wearing it as like his everyday, like nice jacket. You know, going somewhere, and he's like. Huh, I should probably donate this to you guys, you know, because it's the real one that I wore during the 60s. And we're like, yeah, Frank, that's that's pretty cool. It's got the Apollo 8 patch on it and everything. So he mailed it to me later because he's like, I'll wait till spring. I'm going to wear it and then I'll send it to you in the spring. And that's what he did with a note that said, You're not getting my pants. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I think get, you know talking about Moon Man is about as far as we can get away from this movie. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, I don't even remember if I started telling people about where they could find this book. But you know where the places are that we can go. <laughs> you can find this if you wherever you got this particular episode. Go back there, and you can get you can get all the previous episodes. I'm sure if you, if you can't find it on whatever Spotify or whatever you're using, go to the big site uh, Best Minutes uh, thebestminutes.com, and all the previous episodes are there. Uh, of course, if you have your own story about famous people and their stuff that you've um, managed to glom onto, uh, we're always interested in hearing that at uh, Butch's Place, the uh, Best Years uh, Listeners Cafe out there on Facebook or on Twitter at The Best Minutes. Uh, we will be back here tomorrow with more stories as we watch Al Stevenson get to uh, his swanky apartment. But uh, We'll do that tomorrow right here on The Best Minutes. Joe, you 
better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor. 